0: Here we are once again, Mike. We're ready to go. How are you doing? We're fine. Here we are once again. (laughs) (laughs) So we've been on this long journey of the Great Divide. It's been great. Um, What I'd like to shift a little bit, but I I suspect we'll we'll interlap here some. Uh, One thing that's been on my radar pretty commonly now, and I've I've not only seen it uh, at work, but also just in other other commentary, is this idea of unconscious bias. Um, and interestingly, when I first started to hear about this, I, I just kind of laughed because uh, it's stuff you've talked about all the time. Uh, and just not necessarily the specifics of the common term, but the idea that there are non-conscious behaviors uh, and, and the ways in which we think that we're just, we're simply not aware of. We've talked about it with a round table and the importance of having counsel around you, being able to see your blind spots. But so when I I started to hear this, it was kind of like, oh, well, duh. But then I was really taken aback at how many organizations were trying to combat this idea that uh, unconscious bias can be bad, which is sure, everyone has these biases, but they're combat to that was to train everyone and make them aware of their unconscious bias which was profound in and i couldn't help but hear the enlightenment over and over again which makes me think there's probably a relation here to the great divide um particularly in in society not just in in christianity cultural context but i'm i'm curious your thoughts when maybe when you hear about unconscious bias or what stands out to you there of uh are, are, are organizations getting this right? Are they addressing unconscious bias in a way that's going to be effective?
1: Well, probably not effective. They're, they're half right. So the analysis is pretty good. The, uh, the solution is pretty bad. So uh, another way to think about this, by the way, there, if anybody reads The Economist, good little article in the July 11 uh, Economist edition, uh, called The Mark of Cain, and, and uh, the writer and the Economist, called White Too Long, and he does touch upon the unconscious bias in white evangelicals towards blacks, towards actually minority races. So, uh, and of course, there's the, the problem with an unconscious bias is the first thing you go, that ain't me, no, no way. And so... Um, The book does a pretty good job at at, um, taking into account all sorts of factors, and yet what 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 continues to come out is a persistent unconscious bias. So, but you know, if I was, it doesn't matter if I am Asian or if I am African American. We all have uh, unconscious bias. So this is not just the domain of white people. Having said that, the key is not raising consciousness. So yes, we have unconscious biases, but the solution since the great divide that is post 1816 has been, what's called consciousness raising and that's
0: ineffective. And what do you mean by consciousness raising?
1: Well, consciousness is actually more akin to a Buddhist idea. Of being, it simply means to be aware. So you might be aware that um, there was a, a, a terrible blast in Beirut this past week, an explosion that took out the port and at this time killed over a hundred people. So you might you might probably aware of that, and a lot of our listeners are probably aware of that. What do you do
0: about it? Yeah, that's helpful, and that I mean that definitely fits exactly what I've seen uh, going through these online trainings, and the end result is you know so hopefully now you're more aware of of this thing, and you can be almost on guard against it. That's the that's the end result.
1: Yes. So again, we have unbiased. We have. Uh, <laughs> We have unconscious biases. That's a given. That's right. No one's pushing back on that. The solution since the great divide is raise consciousness as if that's somehow like magic dust turns into action. So there's no evidence that that's the case. And in fact, so what we're seeing we'll get to in a moment is before the great divide, the appeal was to conscience and conscience is not consciousness. And I know that that gets difficult to parse out. Conscience comes from the Latin with knowledge. That is something comes with our knowledge. And what that is is something that drives you batty if you don't do something about it. That's what conscience does. So it's, for example, we're named, my institute is named after the Clapham sect. And one of the leaders in the Clapham sect was Thomas Clarkson, who won at Cambridge, the essay contest on, is slavery evil? And he said, he, he wrote that entire thing with nary a thought about, well, then what should I do about it? And yet on his way back to London, he stops his horse at a creek and the horse is refreshing itself, and all of a sudden he has pangs of conscience, it says, he as he recorded. And he said, if this is true, something must be done about it. And the course of his life changed. And as you know with Clapham, it said that they pricked the conscience of the British people, so they actually enacted structural change. Now the reason I'm pointing this out is that there's two recent articles in The Atlantic both by black leaders, both questioning the efficacy or the effectiveness of consciousness raising.
0: Hmm. How, how so? What were they questioning?
1: Well, the first one is by uh, Seda Gundry. She's a black feminist and a professor. You can Google Gundry, Grundy rather, G-R-U-N-D-Y. But her article is called The False Promise of Anti-Racism Books. So here's a black leader speaking on black leaders who are writing all these books and whites who are writing on uh, how do we end systemic uh, racism? And she challenges the efficacy of, quote, collective awareness. That is, if we just get the uh, quoting here from her article... The idea that broader knowledge of systemic racism will bring about meaningful social change. So, Pat, if you're just more aware of racism, systemic racism, that will that idea will just like magic dust fall into your brain, then head into your heart, and then drift out to your hands and lead to behavioral change. Mm. And Grundy to her credit says, this is ineffective. In fact, she even notes that in the 1960s, all sorts of radical feminists, especially black ones were critical of consciousness raising. And she says, it amounts to, often amounts to a little more than navel gazing. What I like about the article is she says, the false promise of anti-racism books is they don't actually do the hard work of, you have to create systemic structural change to change a culture. Ideas are not enough. Now, she, without knowing it, is actually someone who's speaking from the other side of the great divide because the great divide that Lewis talked about in 1816 follows the didactic enlightenment, didactic means teaching, Hence 1816, Jefferson says, enlighten the people generally and tyranny will disappear like dew in the morning. How's that working out? (laughs) Oh boy. If only so. (laughs) So Jefferson and frankly, well, we've been talking about the, the evangelical tradition but not just the evangelical tradition are very much their unconscious bias. Get this is toward the didactic enlightenment.
0: It's quite ironic.
1: (laughs) The irony is rich. (laughs) It's astonishing. And so what happens is you have Jefferson, who was very aware that slavery was evil. Most people don't know that the first, effort at legislation that he ever proposed, he ever introduced, was in the House of Burgess, Virginia. It was uh, against slavery. So he was very aware that slavery was evil. What did he do about it? He did nothing after that, he met some resistance. And as you know, he died with well over 100 slaves. Jefferson was also conscious that debt was bad, that it was actually evil. Yet, he died deeply in debt. Why didn't he do anything about it? Because consciousness raising doesn't translate into structural change. It's because consciousness raising is wrapped up in the didactic enlightenment, which says, Pat Brown, here's how you change. Fill your head with the right ideas. That will then fill your heart with the right ideas. That will then fill your body with right behaviors. Before the Great Divide path, the understanding of change was that it starts in your hands, moves to your heart, then to your brain. And it requires cultural systemic change. Why? Because 95% of your behaviors are culturally governed, culturally conditioned. So if you don't create structural changes in societies and in cultures, you're not going to think right. And so to her credit, Grundy is exactly right. And C.S. Lewis's Great Divide explains why. But we're caught up in the same way that if, if we just get enough of the right ideas in people's minds, society will magically change, and it doesn't take into account the complexity of structural change. It requires institutions, it requires images, it requires elites, and Clapham understood this. That's why Clapham, I consider, but I don't think I'm alone in this, is the last instance in the conservative Christian faith tradition of changing the world in significant ways, because they weren't interested in consciousness raising. They were trying to prick the conscience of the nation, which, by the way, is, is very biblical, because why is David called a man after God's own conscience, both in Samuel and in Acts 23? They might say, wait, wait, it says a man after God's own heart. Yes, but the Hebrew language always uses metaphors for the immaterial, material metaphors for the immaterial, since the conscience, which is immaterial, was always called the heart, but it was the conscience, and Paul is called, also said he strove to maintain a clear conscience, but David is called that, but David did some horrific things, why is he a man after God's own conscience, because Conscience is self-awareness that I've got to do something about this. So Nathan comes, says, you're the man. He repents. He numbers the people later on in his life. God says, bad move. And he repents, he repudiates, he restores, he makes reparations, he does whatever is necessary. He, conscience makes us responsible. And in some way, no doubt, we all have some unconscious biases that are racist that we have to remediate. But I think right now what we're seeing, especially as you're seeing in corporate America, is they're almost slobbering over themselves to swing the pendulum wildly to the other side by just raising consciousness. And also, quite frankly, my white evangelical friends, I just see it's just a, a complete capitulation. Yep, you're right, we're racist, and blah, blah, blah. This sort of stuff is not going to change the world. It's going to be a spasm of morality, who will bring about some good changes, but nothing that will be enduring and, and remediate this problem of systemic racism that goes way, way back. So that's the first article. There's a second one also in the in the Atlantic that's worth noting.
0: I think it's also worth just mentioning real quick, and, and we've probably mentioned this before, but uh, it can't hurt to say again, the message you're saying shouldn't be construed to think that we simply need to go back to the old way of thinking. I think what, what you're saying, and correcting me if I'm wrong, is there were elements in, in the old way of thinking prior to the Great Divide on the other side of the divide that Uh, We've lost, and some of those elements were really critical and important. And what we've done by buying into the Enlightenment is, we're not saying the Enlightenment itself was all bad, but there were elements that maybe we bought into a little too hard. And today we are facing a lot of issues because of that. And so we're not we're not just blanket saying go back, um, but we are saying we think we've lost something.
1: Well said. And I think what we've lost. For us as evangelicals, and if you're an American evangelical, your tradition is probably no more than 200 years old, which is worth pondering for a faith that is thousands of years old. Why is ours called an aberration by cultural analysts? It's because it sits on this side of the divide. And so you're right we're not saying, let's all dress like we live in 1790 and go back to that. And there was certainly racism before, and it certainly was there was no tradition, boy, just hit the ball out of the park. They really had, really had things nailed. But they did have a more accurate assessment of human nature, is what we're saying. And this is why I think Jamie Smith and his books, most recent one, You Are What You Love, are a helpful corrective because Smith says, your view of human nature actually shapes your theology, that anthropology precedes theology. And the anthropology or the view of human nature prior to the divide was the appeal, was not to consciousness and raising consciousness, even though we have unconscious biases, But the appeal was to conscience, this moral capacity to imagine a gap between what I practice and what I preach. And that gap, this is important, Pat. that gap is not discovered by navel-gazing. That's where Grundy is right. It's not by... Going for a walk in the woods or just getting alone with God. It could, but more often than not, because of this idea before the great divide of what's called human agency. By the way, what does that mean, human agency?
0: Uh, a- acting, um, not to be overly individual, but uh, taking responsibility for your actions, acting as, as oneself.
1: And yes, and that God uses other people to make you aware. Mm. For example, David sins against Bathsheba and her husband and so on and so forth. The modern evangelical view is, uh, well, let the Holy Spirit speak to him. Which could happen, but human agency, God uses a human being, Nathan, the prophet, that's why I joke that today, much of our faith tradition is not for profit. <laughs> A nightclub joke here early in the morning. But human agency says that God brings along people. And hence, the Clapham sect was influenced by William Wilberforce, who wrote to his 13-year-old daughter. At the age of 13, you should have, quote, accustomed to yourself to the friendly reproofs, of a genuine friend. In other words, you ought to be used to people coming to you and pointing out blind spots, unconscious biases. And he then quotes Jeremiah, the conscience is deceitful, desperately wicked. You're the easiest person to dupe. And his hope is that she would be, grow up as a woman of good, clear conscience. This, mostly disappeared after the Great Divide. The best book on this, you know, the two books by the historian Philip Johnson, Paul Johnson, rather, on the modern world that came after 1815. And one of the things he points out is all this notion about conscience, the demarcation human beings, disappeared. And so we're not saying they get it all right on the other side of their vibe, but we're saying without an understanding of human nature, you're gonna do things like consciousness raising, and all we have to do is raise consciousness. And Grundy's right, the false promise in that is you can come away from all these, these seminars that are facilitated at your company, but if you measure empirical behavior, empirically verified studies of human behavior, Hardly anything will
0: change. Yeah, and that is my lament. Uh, It costs a lot of money to bring in some of these speakers and to put together some of these trainings and to see my company spending so much money on those things and and with with good intentions, but so much money on those things that, uh, based on a lot of my understanding and our conversations, I I don't think is going to actually solve some of the problems that are very real today. And it's, it's tough to watch.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. The, in our industry, we, this is what gives consultants a black guy. You know, it's the old adage, nice work if you can get it. And, uh, so you come in and do this thing and everybody gushes, but you come back a year later and say, what's been changed now again, change is not also okay. Now we're going to codify this in a book of ethics. it's worth remembering that Enron had a 65 page ethics manual.
0: Mm. Yeah,
1: but their entire orientation was what Grundy is saying is is ineffective. It's just consciousness raising. So padding the expense report is wrong. So everyone say back to me: padding the expense report <laughs> is wrong. Okay, we're all conscious of that now, right? Right? <laughs> yes.
0: So we're not going to do it, right? <laughs> This is good. This is know what Clapham seminars look like. It's good to know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It is. This is what I think. um, This is my lament, Pat. Is that we're in a world that doesn't understand human nature anymore. And we're as culpable. You want to talk about unconscious bias. Over 80% of our worship songs are in the first person singular. So we are what uh, Christian Smith at Notre Dame says The basic gospel today is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic. God wants you to be happy. Uh, Therapeutic. Church is a safe place. So what you end up with is you never have the friendly reproofs of a friend so you don't cultivate a clear conscience. But you can live in a town where you can say, Hey, are you conscious that you live in a trifurcated town called Annapolis? Black, white, white. Hispanic, and never the three shall meet? Sure. Are you familiar with 75% of Hispanics lost their work in the pandemic? Sure. What do you do about it? I don't know. We we, got to stay quarantined. Or, as others have pointed out, we become the check-writing people. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll write a check. This conscience if it was properly elevated, would have people, their head would hit the pillow at night and say, I can't sleep. This isn't right. I can't live this way. You'd be like Thomas Clarkson. So what if you won the award at Cambridge? What are you doing about it? By the way, Clarkson would travel between seven to 8,000 miles on horseback over the course of the rest of his life amassing research on the English slave trade.
0: Mm. Well, Mike, it's it's really as always, you bring a lot of these different thoughts I've had together and make them more clear, but one of the things I started to notice at my company was, was a, a key thinking that plagued the organization in the smaller circles I was involved in early on and as I've Uh, just growing in the company. I've seen it in larger circles as well, but it's the idea of us versus them. And very quickly, you hear it in the language, us and them, us and them. And you start to see rifts in relationships with different departments, different teams, because I think in a lot of ways, it has to do with conscience. Conscience understands uh, together, collective, we, us. Uh, It does not understand, uh, or or incorrectly, Will point out, no, they're the problem, and it ignores the common shared issues that we have. And so, what I'd see with teams is they get involved in this. Oh, it's it's us versus them, and you hear uh, dissent in the language, and then uh, we see that play out even further in the world today in politics. It's our side's right, their side's wrong, and what's what's the solution? Get rid of them. If only we got rid of that department. If only we got rid of those people. And it's it's just like you said. It's it's a failure to see that it's it's we all we all share these problems. They theirs maybe are slightly different, but they're still plagued by it. Ours are, are maybe slightly different, but we're still plagued by it. And that that I think is what conscience gets us back to. Yeah. Well said. Well, tell me about the uh, second article.
1: Well, actually it, it uh segues right into your comments on conscience uh by the way full disclosure for listeners we're not following a script here so <laughs> just happened to fall into the segue there <laughs> don't tell so me oh darn so if you if uh, if we take into account that uh everybody has a conscience and you do operate by conscience this is why the bible talks about four types of conscience one is healthy and promotes action, proper action, rather. It promotes repentance, repudiation, reparation, remediation, so on and so forth. There's three that are corrupted. And what happens in those corrupted, Pat, as you just pointed out, they tend to point the finger at the other. The wounded, defiled, and, and, and seared conscience say, you're the problem. I ain't got no problem. You're the problem. Now, having said all that, I find it ironic that the the uh, corporate America is all, it's all the rage right now to do uh, seminars based on Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility. Ever heard of that one?
0: Oh, yeah. Known all too Oh, oh yeah.
1: So the second article in the uh, Atlantic is by James McWhorter, John McWhorter, I'm sorry, Professor Columbia. Again, black. Professor, he's black and he's calling out some of the black movement. <clears throat> no, Robin D'Angelo is white. But the, his, the article is called The Condescending Dehumanization of White Fragility. The condescending dehumanization. Take dehumanization just for a moment. Just a few minutes ago we said the problem on this side of the divide is it doesn't understand human nature mcwarder says the same thing essentially in this article he doesn't cite the divide but this is demeaning to human nature now white fragility is important because d'angelo basically and her followers basically they facilitate consciousness raising workshops in major corporations and if i understand correctly the premise is white people are racist White fragility, now they are unconsciously racist. Uh, all white people. White fragility explains why the majority of whites deny they're racist. And only enlightened whites acknowledge it.
0: Yeah, and so I, I've uh, I've heard D'Angelo speak. I've, I've listened to parts of her book on, on audio. And there is nuance, and there's something to understand. Because I think even if listeners hear that, they'll immediately be like, well, that's ridiculous. But the the nuance, which is why I think a tough part about her book, is uh, maybe a redefinition of terms, arguably. But uh, when she talks about racism, it, it kind of goes into the, um, uh, the how to be anti-racist notion, which is sort of defining racism not necessarily as intent, but basing racism on outcome. And so being able to look at something that... Uh, has a disproportionate outcome, and be able to say, well, if, if there are racial divides in that outcome, then we can deem that thing racist. Uh, and so, therefore, if, if as a, a white individual, we are partaking in something that uh, has an outcome where, where whites are better off in society, we, therefore, are complicit in racism and naturally will gravitate towards that thing. She's she's pretty clear in words um, that there is, uh, n- it's not necessarily a guilty uh, sentence when it comes to racism. It's just a matter of fact. So I will say right. I think that's where some of the nuance is lost. Um, you can argue for or against that in a lot of ways. Um, but, but that is probably pretty important to clarify is, that's that's what she's getting at and by her own admission in her book she does say this book is written for white liberals you know so like it, it does come from a a specific uh, political stance right off the bat it's not a, it's not assumed to be presented to to uh, people of a differing mindset it's definitely fueling the fire for a pre-existing mindset right which
1: again we're not we're not Denying there's unconscious bias, and so we're again there's merit in what she says, but again you're back to, well, how did she become enlightened?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And second, you know the there's such a thing. It's called confirmation bias, which I'm sure you've heard. Sure.
0: Yeah.
1: And. Uh, there's a part of me that hears confirmation bias. If you come in with, well, here are my premises, premises, and uh, they're not they're not under scrutiny. They're givens. So outcomes, if outcomes are disparate, there's inherent racism in, in it. And so the fragility, as you understand it, is where is in what?
0: Oh, uh, I'm sorry. What do you mean?
1: Well, it's white fragility. What's, right, color what's of my the, skin. Yeah, but what's yeah. the fragility? What's fragile?
0: Oh, uh, my ability to converse about race as a white person. Yeah. I, I feel I, I'm too uncomfortable. I can't do it.
1: Yeah. My question is, um, so Robin, are you white? <laughs> In other words, so you're the exception to your rule,
0: right? What'd she say? Oh, I wish I knew the answer to that. <laughs> she, I, I imagine she would have an answer. Uh, I'd be really curious what it would be. Well, the best that
1: I can make out of her book. And, and I think what, what McWhorter is pointing out is that she's done this by raising consciousness all by herself.
0: Yeah, yeah. She speaks on uh, a lot of her study. She she frequently points out that she is a professional. And so even, you know, uh, I think if I were to guess, Mike is a white person, you probably have uh, opinions, but they're probably uninformed uh, because she has spent a lot of time studying this and has the information, which I think points to your raising consciousness.
1: Yeah, she's, uh, I mean, gosh, my I met she so walked in the house here, enjoy having a good glass of red wine in the evening. But the question I would ask is um, how are you unlike Thomas Jefferson?
0: Mm, that's good. In other words, what has actually, what have you done? Well, you, you're doing these workshops.
1: Where's the, uh, where are the, you have say you said, have you done the research that, well, uh, there's a couple of things. First of all, disparate outcomes. To root them all back to a single source is not what I would call scholarly.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and many would object.
1: Uh, is racism in the mix. Well, first of all, I go in as an agnostic, but let's just say, sure. How much of the mix? How predominant? On a scale of, you know, if there's 20 things that contribute to these disparate outcomes, what role does it play? More importantly, and I think what... Um, McWhorter is getting at, is the whole notion of fragility denotes that, uh, why does he call it dehumanizing?
0: I don't know, you have to tell me.
1: Well, that is lot of it is that uh, we are, uh, well, I may even try to quote him here, but it's the idea we're, we're endlessly delicate poster children. We just, you really, Hmm. that's black people are endlessly delicate poster children and white America needs to think or stop thinking about them this way. And, and, and also white America is, we just, well, to quote famous line out of a few good men, you can't handle the truth. So I'm telling you the truth. If you are unaware and don't accept these premises that's because you're fragile if you do then you're not fragile you can raise your consciousness it feels a bit like a catch-22 frankly so in that famous movie about world war ii if you you can only get out of the arm it's a obviously it's fictional, but there was this catch-22 in the rule book, but if you're judged insane, you can get out of the war. So if you want to get out of the war, you're sane, so you can't. But if you are insane, you don't want to get out of the war, so you don't try to get out. Either way, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. And in the same way, this has that same feel of Here are the givens. My research indicates disparate outcomes. They're rooted in racism. Racism is an unconscious bias. So Mike is a white person. You have this. If you accept these premises and these outcomes and how I frame the argument, then you can raise your, you're raising your consciousness and this will lead to structural change, which again, is pointing out as does Grundy. That's not the way it works. Mm -hmm. Second, If you don't accept all my premises, lock, stock and barrel and you're not enlightened, then it's because you are fragile. Fragile people can't handle the truth. I can handle the truth now, the authors say, because I have raised my consciousness. This is. My father would have used the word malarkey. It's a it's a whole lot of verbiage, because what it doesn't take into account again is there are four types of conscience, conscience, and again we're not playing with words. This isn't a semantical deal this morning. This is a substantive. Over 31 times in the New Testament, the Bible talks about human conscience. The Apostle Paul appealed to human conscience as a linchpin for changing the world. So did Martin Luther. So did all these faith traditions before the Great Divide. Even Mahatma Gandhi, after the divide, spoke of human conscience, as did Augustine and Aquinas and so on and so forth but there was a recognition there are four types of conscience. This is where on the other side of the divide, this is where I would speak of fragile in this way. The four types of conscience, even a good conscience, the first, there's only one type that's good because it gives an accurate sense of self awareness. Self-awareness understands that we are frail, but not necessarily fragile. What's the difference?
0: fragile can break and shatter and frail, um, is, uh, something to be careful of something to be cared for.
1: That's right. Give us this day, our daily bread, forgive our Yeah. Our trespasses lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Dallas Willard taught me that that phrase denotes human frailty that we are prone to but if we're people of good conscience, even like David, you can do horrendous sin, but you can rebound, you are resilient, you can hear the hardest truth about yourself and rebound. Fragile is what happens when you have a corrupted conscience, is what you see in the Corinthian church with the wounded and defiled conscience they could not bear to hear the truth the problem was the other people you drink wine i grew up my dad was an alcoholic so you're killing me to do that you're the problem you eat meat sacrificed to idols i used to be in that temple i used to eat that meat you're now eating it you're the problem that's called fragile fragile is these people shatter, they break easily. What D'Angelo doesn't recognize is on the other side of the divide is a view of human nature that says, as Paul did in Acts 24, strive to maintain a clear conscience. If you have a clear conscience, you invite in the friendly reproofs of friends, to discover your unconscious biases. You don't do consciousness raising, you don't do navel-gazing, you don't go take a walk in the woods. This side of the divide, white fragility says we're all fragile. Now, as a follower of Christ, I go, no, we are, not necessarily. You can be a person of good conscience. If you're a good conscience, you're frail, but you're not fragile. You can hear difficult truths. But I I reject categorically, I think it's dehumanizing to agree with McWhorter, that we're all fragile. She's essentially saying, if God is right and God reigns and he defines reality better than we do, that we all have bent, warped, corrupted consciences. Our conscience in every single white person is off and it can only be corrected by consciousness raising to which I would just simply say as a follower of Christ, uh, Robin, I, res- I respect some of your research, but the fact of the matter is that's an unchallenged premise. That, that's That's such a broad simplistic notion about an an entire race it's just not true
0: mike i think it's worth noting here and this is what i think is so ironic about some of this is uh is for many i mean they they could listen to this and be like well sure but here we are here's another example of uh, a white male who has an organization who uh, wants to ignore the facts of today and and um, go back to not doing anything about this problem and what I think is so ironic about that is before any of this was popular, before any uh great racial awakenings were happening, Clapham had started affordable Annapolis and was working actively to try to solve the trifurcation of Annapolis and, and particularly looking at uh, issues of poverty. You were doing that before any of this stuff was called out because you saw systemic issues and, and you knew they needed systemic solutions. Um, well, it's kind
1: kind of you, also say, we've been a fantastic failure to date, but um, <laughs> more sure. to the point. yeah, but, but, but go ahead. But to the point, you see, Before the Great Divide, you see faith traditions who would have found what we're doing in 2020 and would have scratched their head and going, what? Hey, we're with you. There are problems, but these are systemic problems requiring systemic solutions on scales of economy that you really know nothing about. These books... Give a false promise. That's where Grundy is right. It is a false promise, and the false promises think right will act right. That comes straight out of the didactic. What is right is, it's not like that. It's dehumanizing. It's dehumanizing because it, it, it denigrates every person. Well, but we'll just say right now, just white people down to you all have ba- you all have bad conscience because of these outcomes. Everyone, none of you operate with a clear conscience. Now
0: I writing this book do. Yeah, and that's where I think uh, I think it's unfortunate, but it's important to clarify. That's I, right. I don't think a lot of what you're saying is is necessarily that the outcomes uh, or the causes are necessarily tremendously different than what D'Angelo is saying. But what you are saying is how we're going about solving those problems is is not gonna result, it's that false promise. It's not gonna result in actually solving these problems, which is where I, I consistently hear, like you said earlier, you, you, you don't have a heart of anger towards any of this. It's a heart of lament. It's a heart Oh yeah, that's
1: exactly right. And because, you know, Mitt Romney, for example, when he ran for whatever, 2016, when he ran for president, he got in trouble for the simple statement. Uh, all institutions are human They're humans and again, for some reason, everybody is but you know, Med was right. He's right about, in this regard, all these institutions and institutionalized racism comes from an understanding of how human nature works or, or doesn't work. And if you don't understand how human nature operates, then you can't bring about structural change. And if... If not only an assumption going all the way back to Genesis, where the mandate was to make cultures, now we know why. Because if 95% of our behaviors are governed by cultures, so we want to end systemic racism, that means you got to create, what Grundy is saying, you got to create structural, cultural change, not just do consciousness raising. It ain't going to get you where you want to go. Because consciousness doesn't leverage human conscience.
0: You know, I was going to say, it's funny because you see this, even at my company, uh, again, unconscious bias, like these were phrases used far before it became popular to talk about these. And the company had been working and doing trainings to address some of these things. And then uh, George Floyd hit and a lot of this stuff, it became mainstream to talk about it. And a lot of people were saying, you know, well, what are we going to do about this as a company? And to, to my company's credit, some of that was, well, recognize we are, we have already been trying to do this. Like we've already been trying to tackle this problem, but to the naysayers credit, uh, if you look at the actual evidence, the outcomes, you do not see a change in our company. And so we've been we've been trying to do this consciousness raising for a little while now, and it has not resulted in change. And what we've done recently is simply ramped up the conscious uh, raising. And I think that's it. Speaks to I don't I don't think we're gonna have different outcomes. But I'm really curious. Maybe we don't have time for this. Um, but but Mike, you know, this is great. We offered a great critique. If you were to come into an organization. How would you help set up? How would you help solve these problems for that company? What kind of structure looks does that look like in a way that is not just consciousness raising? Yeah,
1: that's a really great question. Um, so it's a longer one than we do today, but uh, but nothing new here. What we actually do in, in my line of work is we have uh, businesses, churches, or any organization, we begin with picture drawing. and pictures give away the game as to uh, some unconscious biases so again uh, a post great divide left brain approach is hey let's talk about your biases well once you're in the verb once you're in that verbal mode you're already editing yourself and so i've come up with a series of exercises for where people are unedited there's also a war games we did years ago on leadership, which were fantastic. And you have to set these up. They're a little more complex. They came out of the air force Academy some 40, 50 years ago, but in war games, which are conducted, uh, you act in an unedited way and the biases pop out, uh, just because you're under a uh, crunch time, high pressure, and you've got to get this thing done or the army comes over the hill and slaughters you all and so on and so forth. You have to, I mean they're intense, but in that intensity, it gives away your bias. Um, but what you'll find is there's biases all or, all around, and there are many different levels, so it doesn't get reduced down to the outcomes. Cannot be reduced down to one thing. That's the value. So, uh, picture drawing, war game exercises. There's a lot of different ways to get at it, but that's. But you'll notice picture drawing, hands, war games, hands. You give away your biases by how you behave. So you have to create exercises where people behave in unconscious ways. And the worst way to do it is put them in a seminar, give them a notebook, and sit in a seat, sit in rows, now six feet apart, I understand, and say, now we're going to talk about biases, and and we're going to raise consciousness. You are now in the left brain, and the left brain, as e. McGill, Chris points out, is woefully unaware of its shortcomings and always overestimates its virtues.
0: So, would you would you say it's it's correct to say, when someone walks away from your your classic uh, exercise today or something on unconscious bias, they walk away maybe with an understanding of of what it is, a definition. And probably even some recognition that they've seen that thing, but it's very easy for that just to go to the wayside. Whereas what Clapham's trying to do is not walk away with understanding, but walk away with conviction. So when someone, someone's in these exercises, what they feel is actually a sense of conviction. And when they walk away, their, their conscience is uh, is more able to detect these. Is, is that kind of what you're going towards? Yeah, I mean,
1: a a quick example is uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, my wife Kathy and uh, many educators uh, in her school just set up a pop-up pantry that has now grown to over 150 volunteers and over 20,000 individuals. And it it is big. I mean, this morning after this, I'll go over and uh, repack chicken. Uh, in uh, these bags we can hand out to the 300 cars that will come through. And this is a seven-hour Saturday deal every Saturday. But here's the thing I've heard. A couple of observations. First of all, the vast majority of the people who are doing this happen to be white, and it's a 96% Hispanic school. So I look around and go, so we all have this, uh, we're all racist, huh? Well, that's funny. These people here don't look racist. Second, uh, you will see, I will hear people say this is a highlight of their week. And it's because, you know, a lot of people are code claustrophobic right now. It's like, I don't get out and do anything. I don't see mm-hmm. anybody. Well, we take temperature. We wear a mask. We wear gloves. People don't get out of their cars. This thing is run professionally. But the fact of the matter is I see people cry. And it's because they said, you know, I was aware there was 75% unemployment, but when I lifted the trunk put the food in, and I saw their business, I just started to weep. I said, oh my God, this is their livelihood, and they're unemployed. It's the difference path between reading about it in the paper, or hearing about it, and actually, I mean, on days when it's been in the 90s, and you're wringing out of your shirt, and you're slathering on the disinfectant, but you're handing these boxes of diapers and food and toys and produce, and you see someone pull up in a van, a restaurant, and they deliver 300 prepared meals. And you sit there and go, if you're not touched by that, you don't have a conscience. Mm. And what happens through that, through a friend of mine who's 78 years old, graduate of the United States Naval Academy, who has joined in saying, now we have to find a way to systematize this because had I not been here, I would have not seen firsthand and experienced the structures that I enjoy as a white person are not here for the Hispanic community and we have changed this. That's an incredible example. Wow. Wow. it's true in the black community, too. And so this same man is helping us try to restart something in the black community. But you can read about this till the cows come home, Pat. But it's entirely different when you watch 300-plus cars come through, and most of the people, you only understand one word, they're saying, gracias, 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 gracias. I'm probably even butchering that because I don't know any Spanish. But behind their masks, I see big smiles and gratitude, and I feel like I'm the one getting, I'm the fortunate one in terms of, I sit there and go, we gotta do something about this. We don't, in the white community, I've got all these structures in place. I don't have this problem. 50% 50% of the homes don't have internet. That's what we're working on now is that it's fine for me to work from home. I've done it for plus 30 years. It's fine for my white friends. They can all do it. They're just motoring along. These kids end up, 1 billion people, the United Nations announced this past week, 1 billion children do not have internet access. And so remote learning is putting is going to put them permanently behind. That's called structural. But I wouldn't have noticed that I had i not been married to someone who's been 16 plus years in this school. Used to be white a long time ago, then it was black. Now it's Hispanic. And you see a whopping amount of these kids don't have internet. Or one time I look in on a Zoom and in the background there's a hammock And Kathy just innocently asks, what that is. And this sweet second grader probably says, well, there's three families here in this apartment. Sometimes mom sleeps there, sometimes dad sleeps in the hammock. And my wife starts to tear up. If you don't get this kind of firsthand, and so this is what, this kind of experience, you don't prick the conscience But if you prick the conscience, you make a difference. I just think we're in a world where consciousness raising just simply isn't going to get us where we want to go.